Inflation last month was worse than expected, raising concerns that the Federal Reserve will need to continue to lift interest rates aggressively to bring prices under control. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, September 13th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the child poverty rate fell to a new low last year, according to the Census Bureau data. Many low-income families benefited from last year's temporary expansion of the child tax credit. They spend it on housing, food, education. They are investing in their kids and their families are able to make ends meet in really important ways. Teachers in Seattle say they've reached a tentative agreement with the school district on a new contract. The deal means 50,000 students will return to the classroom. These stories and the forecast and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Disappointing data on inflation today is leading to a steep sell-off on Wall Street. The Dow is down more than 1,200 points. That's nearly 4 percent. NPR's David Gura reports it's raising expectations the Fed will once again move aggressively to raise interest rates when it meets next week. The Consumer Price Index for August showed inflation moderated some. It was up 8.3 percent from a year earlier. But inflation did not ease as much as Wall Street expected, despite gasoline prices falling from record highs in June. These data are important indicators to Federal Reserve policymakers in particular, who spent last week doubling down on their commitment to get inflation under control. Now Wall Street expects the central bank will raise interest rates by an additional three-quarters of a percentage point at least. That realization, and concern the Fed won't be able to curb inflation without kickstarting a recession, led to the sell-off after several days of gains. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Kiev says it has recaptured more than 2,300 square miles in less than two weeks in the eastern Kharkiv region. White House spokesman John Kirby says the Russian retreat signals a shift in momentum. They have left fighting positions. They've left uh, supplies. Uh, they have. They have. They're calling it a repositioning, but it's certainly they have withdrawn uh, in the face of U- Ukrainian armed forces that are clearly on the offense. Kirby, however, is cautioning against reading too much too soon into Ukraine's gains because, he says, war can be unpredictable. He says the U.S. will likely announce more military aid in the coming days. Workers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant have now reconnected the third backup power line to the country's grid. That's according to the U.N. nuclear watchdog, and it's a major step toward safety. It boosts confidence over keeping the reactors cool after all power lines were disconnected amid shelling damage. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is urging calm as fighting flares up once again between Azerbaijan and Armenia. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Blinken has spoken to the leaders of the two nations. Blinken says a U.S. envoy is in the region trying to calm tensions, and he's urging Russia not to, quote, stir the pot. If Russia can actually use its own influence for good, which is to uh, calm the waters and the violence uh, and urge people to uh, engage Uh, in good faith on building peace, that would be a positive thing. Russia mediated a ceasefire, ending a conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020, and the Kremlin is calling on both sides now to de-escalate. The two countries blame each other for the latest flare-up of fighting. Blinken says the violence is in no one's interest. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Former security chief at Twitter turned whistleblower Peter Zatko testified before Congress today, saying the social media giant is more than a decade behind industry security standards, leaving users vulnerable. It's NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA officials say work on the Orange Line is now 82% complete. Crews shut down the line and began replacing tracks and rails and upgrading signals on August 19th. This work is part of a directive from the Federal Transit Administration to improve safety and address deferred maintenance. MBTA also says 64 new Orange Line cars will be available once service resumes. That's more than double the number of cars in service prior to the shutdown. The Orange Line is expected to fully reopen Monday, as promised. Boston is formally challenging the federal government's 2020 census count of the city's population. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, just over 675,000 people were living in Boston two years ago. But Mayor Michelle Wu's office claims the Bureau undercounted the city's college student population, its foreign-born population, and the number of people housed in correctional facilities. City officials say the lower-than-expected population count will result in fewer federal resources for Boston if the count stands. A 17-year-old has been arrested for stabbing a student inside a Boston high school yesterday. Police say the juvenile suspect turned himself in hours after the attack at the Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester. The suspect is sent to be arraigned in Dorchester District Court on a charge of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. The victim suffered non-life-threatening injuries and was taken to a local hospital. The wicked humidity in the area could help fuel some storms later on today. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the heaviest downpours are now in the Berkshires and southern Vermont. The most action is well north and west of us where some damage may occur. In the city, we'll need to be on guard until about 10 p.m. for the threat for a thunderstorm to blow through. Heavy downpours, brief gusty wind and lightning, the primary threats. And thunderstorms that are soaking some parts of the state could eventually work their way into Boston. But overnight tonight, look for clearing skies. Tomorrow, dry weather's back. So's the sunshine. Breezy, highs about 80 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com GBFB. And Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There was hope building about new inflation numbers out today that they might show a big improvement. But that didn't quite happen. The government's consumer price index was worse than expected. The stock market sold off sharply, and there was a collective groan from economists. NPR's Chris Arnold has been following all of this. Hey, Chris. Hey, Juana. So tell us, what stood out in this report, Chris? Well, first, we should say that the overall rate of inflation did slow down a bit. You know, that's good. From an annual rate of 8.5% in July, it came down to 8.3% in August, a little bit. Thing is that gas prices accounted for almost all of that. And and anybody who drives by a gas pump has seen gas prices are down, and that's good. It helps a lot of people. But for just about everything else besides gas, you know, food, news, new cars, medical care, all kinds of other stuff is rising. And that's showing that inflation is still stubbornly hot. I, I talked to economist Mark Zandi with Moody's Analytics just minutes after the report came out, and this was his first gut reaction. Ugh, disappointing. Underlying inflation is very strong, painfully high, and at least in the month of August didn't show any signs of cooling off. So not good news. Yeah, he does not sound impressed. No. 
So, Chris, besides when people are filling up their gas tanks, it does not sound like there's much of a break for people from these higher prices. Right. And Zandi says the typical American household needs to spend, his estimate is about $450 more per month compared to a year ago because of inflation and these higher prices. So, you know, whether it's a few cents for a bunch of bananas at the grocery store might not seem like much, but then there's a bigger electric bill to cool your house over the summer. Uh, You know, so all these things add up and it's more than $5,000 a year for everyday people. And the big UG here too for economists is that a month ago, we had a much better than expected inflation report in a number of ways. And so the hope was that this was going to be encouraging also, but then that didn't happen. One prominent Obama economic advisor tweeted today, uh, the quote was, this CPI report is terrible. So no spin there. No, none at all. Okay, so what about the Federal Reserve? Anything that the Fed can do in the face of all of this inflation? Yeah, next week, the Fed is poised to raise interest rates pretty sharply again. It'll likely be the third meeting in a row where the Fed's expected that they'll raise rates by three quarters of a percent. And that is having an effect. It's cooled off the super hot housing market with with mortgage rates being so high now. I mean, that's just put a lid on home prices. We're not seeing incredible price gains for houses. On the rental side, though, rents are still rising and this winter heating your house is likely to be a lot a lot more expensive. And the Fed just has a tough assignment here to try to rein in prices on all these different things. Okay, so I guess my question here is, are there any signs of hope when it comes to inflation? There is. I have one sign of hope for you. Uh, The Federal Reserve Bank of New York came out with a report about people's expectations about inflation, and that showed significant improvement. People that is thinking that inflation will have cooled off a lot a few years down the road. And that's actually really important because if people were getting more panicked or more worried about inflation, Mark Zandi says that could really be damaging. That's critical because once people uh, begin to think that inflation is going to be high in the future, then they're going to demand higher wages from their employers uh, to compensate. And employers are going to say, no big deal, fine, I'll do it because I can pass along that higher wage cost to my customers in the form of a higher price. You get into this kind of self-reinforcing wage price spiral, which we really don't want to get into. Now, it's the Federal Reserve's job to keep us away from that spiral. So again, likely it's likely going to keep hitting the brakes on the economy with higher interest rates, hopefully without tipping the economy into recession. That's NPR's Chris Arnold. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. Every so often this year, as war has unfolded in Ukraine, I have been checking in with Hannah Hopko. She's a pro-democracy activist, a former member of parliament in Ukraine, and a fellow mom. I first met her in Kyiv right before the war. She has helped me, and I hope many of our listeners understand the human toll that war is taking on her country, and help me understand just how hard Ukrainians are willing to fight for their country. So... I wanted to hear her reaction to the news of Ukraine's stunning military advance over the weekend. It turns out Hanna Hopko is in Washington this week. In fact, here in our studios, Hanna Hopko, so good to speak to you again. So good to see you in person. Welcome to Washington. Thanks a lot, Marie-Louise. I'm really proud to be here to express our gratitude to the American people, to American leadership for helping us to win over Russian aggression. Well, speaking of winning... The headlines these last few days are big battlefield victories for Ukraine, seizing land back that Russia had taken in eastern Ukraine. We hear that Moscow is reeling from this setback. Do you see this as a turning point in the war? 
Uh, thanks to the U.S. military aid and uh, your HIMARS. <laughs> and, uh, the HIMARS, uh, the, the <laughs> weapons that take out Russian air defenses that the U.S. has been sending. Yeah, so uh, helped um, is a game changer. But complete Ukrainian victory means restoration of full uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty and internationally recognized border of 1991. So this is why... Taking back Crimea, taking taking back back, all of Eastern Ukraine. Every inch of Ukrainian territory should be free from Russian occupiers. So I'm hearing you say the goal, the unswerving goal here must be complete Ukrainian victory. That, That a return to the way things were a year ago, two years ago, where Russia occupied Crimea, that that would not be acceptable. Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 by illegal annexation of Crimea. This is how the global security architecture was broken. And Ukrainian victory means, of course, return back to Ukraine, Donbass and Crimea. But I'm asking because, as I'm sure you are hearing in Washington and I've heard on your past visits in Washington, um, a lot of U.S. officials are skeptical that you're going to get Russia to pull out completely at this point, um, that Vladimir Putin will never do that, and that the U.S. and NATO allies say they very much want Ukraine to have a, a better hand when negotiations start, but that there's going to be a negotiation. First, uh, Ukraine should defeat Russia military. Then negotiation starts. Because we have to defeat totalitarianism in 21st century. It's it's key. When when you and I spoke over the summer, you told me that you were losing not one, not three, not five friends a day killed in the war. That every time you opened WhatsApp or opened Facebook, it was somebody else you knew who was gone. Is that still happening? Yes. So this is another reason why we are asking about more weapons. It's so painful to see stories and uh, funerals and when best of the best the brightest people of my country of our nation passing away by defending ukraine's freedom and i'm sure and i'm full of optimism that people there with their empathy to ukraine with their uh, support so uh, we will conduct public awareness campaign to explain why it's really important to continue supporting Ukraine in uh, this uh, Russian genocidal war against us and to win together and not to allow devastation moving beyond our borders and actually to prevent and new wars. The guinea pig. A lot of people listening, um, I think, know and think of you as the guinea pig mom. <laughs> a title that you have added this year. Um you just bought your daughter a guinea pig when Russia invaded. And you were all worried about having to evacuate with the guinea pig, which you have done. What is the update? Where's the guinea pig? Where's your daughter? What's happening? We evacuated to my husband's parents. Uh, they were very happy. I would <laughs> happy uh, because uh, we also, when we evacuated um, a dog, it seems like we will have zoo. <laughs> This is, this is a puppy that you've added. The puppy, yes. So, so we're still divided. So my daughter is, is, is uh, with my parents. Uh, my husband is uh, alone. My home is everywhere when I can't 
um, help my country to win. So I'm traveling a lot and I already visited Czech Republic because of the, their presidency in the EU. Then I go to, went to uh, Georgia, Tbilisi. Now I'm in Washington. Then I'm uh, planning to visit Hungary, uh, Canada. I think this is important for people to hear because we keep, we are hearing from our reporters in Ukraine that while war is, of course, brutal and ongoing in some parts of Ukraine, that life in the capital in Kiev has in many ways returned to normal. I'm, use, I'm using air quotes around normal, but something closer to normal. For your family, very much not. You, your husband, your daughter, you, the pets, you're all, you're all in different places. This is a still, your life is completely upended. Yeah, but, but, but compared to people who lost their loved one, so we are suffering, of course, for the last seven months. I've seen my daughter only seven days. Oh. So this is but I understand that contribution I could do for my country to win faster is um, even more important than now being together with my family. And because it's also part of our victory when uh, my daughter and her husband in the future in 20, 30 years period of time from now will never face aggressive behavior from our neighbor. So, and Russia will never attack any sovereign independent states in the future. Hanna Hopko, thank you. Thank you, Marie-Louise. And um, thank you for your covering and visiting Ukraine. And Ukraine is always welcome. And uh, you will see finally <laughs> guinea pig. I will look forward to it. I will look forward to it. That is activist and former member of parliament in Ukraine and the guinea pig mom, Hanna Hopko. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, an anthropologist and author talks about his new book, Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. On Wall Street, a big Tuesday tumble today. The Dow had its worst day since June of 2020 as it lost nearly 4 percent, 1,276 points to close at 31,105. S&P surrendered 4.32 percent to finish at 39.33. The Nasdaq lost a little over 5 percent today to finally settle at 11,634. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf Showroom and Test Kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf Appliances to make informed selections. More at clarkliving.com. And the Museum of Fine Arts. View magnetic portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama at the MFA. Reserve tickets at mfa.org Obama. Supported by Bank of America. A union that represents General Electric employees says it's reached a deal with a Boston-based company to speed up pay raises for workers at its New England aviation plants. Under the deal, employees at aviation plants in Lynn, Vermont, and New Hampshire would be eligible for raises sooner. They could also reach the company's top pay rate after six years of work instead of the current 10 years. Workers are expected to vote on the deal later on this month. The forecast is coming up.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. Clouds are pretty heavy out there. Humidity is on high. Thunderstorms mostly happening in the north and well west of Boston. The city itself could get hit anytime before 10 tonight. And then clouds give way to clear skies overnight. Tomorrow, sunshine, breezy, highs about 70. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified at duckduckgo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Growing up in Greece, Dimitris Zigalatas remembers adults at school putting him through regular practices that didn't serve an obvious purpose. We'd have morning prayer. Twice a year, we'd have these big parades. We would have uh, compulsory church attendance. As a child, Zigalatas had a hard time understanding why he was doing these things. They felt like mysterious habits without an immediate, tangible, productive result. I really didn't see the point of all those rituals, perhaps because they were imposed on me. Ironically, I ended up studying ritual precisely because I wanted to know what it is that drives human beings all around the world to engage in what seems like pointless activities. Activities from blowing on dice at a casino to marching in an elaborate graduation ceremony. Dimitri Sigalatas is now an anthropologist and cognitive scientist, and he unpacks some of these mysteries in his new book, Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. He begins the book with what he calls the ritual paradox. People often swear by the importance of rituals without being able to articulate why they're so important. I think this is one of the biggest puzzles about human behavior. We tend to think about ourselves as very rational beings, and yet so much of what we consider meaningful sits in actions that are compulsively repeated and yet have no obvious outcome. And I think this is a paradox that is worth explaining. Yeah, and you actually come up with a lot of answers in this book for why do it. Give us a couple of them. So as we study ritual from both a humanistic but also a scientific perspective, we come to see that even if people engage in those rituals without any explicit purpose, there is no particular causal connection between the actions they undertake and that purpose. So for example, when I perform a rain ritual, there's no connection between my movements and water falling from the sky. Rain dances don't make rain. Correct. But even so, just because ritual does not have any direct causal effect in the world, it does not mean that it has no effect in the world at all. In fact, rituals play very important functions in human societies. They help individuals soothe their anxieties, connect to one another. They help people find meaning in their lives. The book is full of examples, and there's one that I love that I've been telling people about, where scientists showed a bunch of participants video footage of the same basketball shot, but half the time the person taking the shot did some ritualistic movement first, and half the time they didn't. And when participants in the study were asked whether the shot 
would end up going through the hoop or not, because the video footage stopped before it reached the hoop, people were far more likely to say that the guy taking the shot who did the ritualistic movement first made the shot, Look, even though they were the exact same movement. Correct. In that study, actually, we showed those videos both to people who had never seen basketball games before and to basketball fans. Their intuitions were that the ritualized shots were going to be more successful. Why do you think that is? This is related to the way we perceive action. Our brain makes causal inferences. So when we engage in a particular action, we expect that there will be an outcome. And ritual has all of those particular structural elements that trigger that sense of causality, even if the causality is not really there. Some rituals are more extreme than others. A birthday party is very innocuous. In contrast, you have spent your life researching firewalking, where people literally walk barefoot across hot coals, which is far more extreme. What is the value of a ritual that pushes people to the limits as much as something like firewalking does? One of the things that I've learned, one of the most fascinating things that I've learned through my research is that even rituals that seem to be painful, stressful, or outright dangerous, they seem to have tangible and, in fact, measurable utility and functions for the people who perform them. For example, in the context of a firewalking ritual in Spain, we found that during this ritual, people's heart rates synchronized. This was not just an effect of people moving at the same time. Their heart rates would synchronize no matter what they were doing at the same time. Some of them were walking on fire, others were watching. And that shows that these rituals play a role in bringing the emotional reactions of the members of that community in alignment. And by aligning our appearances, aligning our emotions, aligning our emotions, those rituals can actually lead to social alignment. The pandemic put a halt to many rituals, from graduation ceremonies to funerals. What did you see when that happened? The COVID pandemic was one of the best uh, lines of evidence for the importance of ritual. I remember the day that my university uh, was shut. I met with my students for what was going to be the last class of the year. And I told them what the plan was. We we're going to switch to online teaching. Somebody asked me, are we going to have a graduation ceremony at the end of the semester? I said, we're not sure, but I doubt this will happen. And I could see that all of them were extremely disappointed. Hmm. The COVID pandemic created this unique conundrum. People turned to ritual to find social connection and to soothe their anxiety. So this was the time that we needed these two things the most. But at the same time, people could no longer get out of their house, get together and perform those collective ceremonies that are so meaningful to them. So of course, what happened was that people spontaneously started either adapting traditional ceremonies. For example, we saw drive-through weddings or they started creating new ceremonies, much like we saw when people in big cities came out in their balconies and started banging pots and, and pans together in a show of solidarity. It really shows that ritual is not a luxury. People will go to great lengths to preserve or create them. It is definitely not a luxury. And in fact, uh, ritual extends way beyond the confines of the typical context in which we think of it, a uh, context like religion. We find it everywhere. Uh, all of our social institutions are permeated by ritual. Think of graduation ceremonies, presidential inaugurations. Think of what happens when you walk into a courtroom. Think what happens at holiday traditions. Think what happens at the bar when you raise your glasses to make a toast. Ritual is everywhere. What's your favorite ritual today as an adult in the world in which we live right now? 
One of the rituals that I really enjoy is that whenever I go back to my home country, which is Greece, I always try to go to my uh, home team's stadium and watch a football game. And during that football game, there's a lot of choreographed, ritualized chanting and movement going on between the fans. And this is one of the strangest things for me because I, I tend to think of myself as a very rational individual. I don't have a lot of supernatural commitments. But whenever I go into this stadium, I cannot help feeling this goosebumps at the back of my neck. That is the, the feeling of collective effervescence. I care deeply about my team. I've cried tears of uh, joy and tears of sadness about my team. This is not something I can explain. Those strong loyalties are forged exclusively through the types of collective rituals that take place in the terraces. So if the anthropologist and author Dimitri Sagalatas could speak with the child who said, ugh, what are all these dumb Greek rituals for, what would he say to him? I would say to, to myself that uh, ritual is a very ancient social technology, and it fulfills the exact same roles today as it did for our ancestors thousands of years ago. So I would say embrace it. Dimitri Sigalatas is an anthropologist and cognitive scientist whose new book is Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. There are a few pockets of filtered sun between the breaks in the clouds and a small area of heavy rain between Plymouth and New Bedford right now. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed by all the day's news. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon. SNHU.edu. I use my show. The midterms are coming, and your TV's already flooded with campaign ads. I'm Dr. Oz, and I approve this message because the Senate deserves a conservative outsider who will fight for you. I trust Tim Ryan to keep our community safe. I'm Tim Ryan, and I approve this message. I'm Ron Johnson, and I approve this message. I'm Maggie Hassan, and I approve this message. But do the ads even work? Do they sway voters at all? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The personal data of Twitter users is vulnerable to hackers and even foreign spies. That the wor- that's the word today from Twitter's former security chief who told the Senate Judiciary Committee the social media platform is plagued by weak cyber defenses. Peter Zatko says that makes Twitter vulnerable to exploitation by thieves and spies, even tech-savvy teenagers. They don't know what data they have, where it lives, or where it came from, and so, unsurprisingly, they can't protect it. And this leads to the second problem, which is the employees then have to have too much access to too much data and to too many systems. You can think of it this way, which is it doesn't matter who has keys, 
if you don't have any locks on the doors. Zatko was fired earlier this year. He accuses Twitter leadership of misleading regulators, the public, even its own board of directors. His accusations are playing into Elon Musk's battle with Twitter to get out of his bid to buy the company. The FBI says it arrested nearly 6,000 violent criminals during a summer surge of law enforcement. NPR's Kerry Johnson has more on the nationwide crackdown. The FBI deployed more than 300 task forces to make arrests and crack down on gang and gun violence. The Bureau says it seized 2,700 guns and helped dismantle dozens of criminal organizations between May and early September. FBI Director Chris Ray says the agency's most sacred duty is to ensure people feel safe in their homes and their neighborhoods. Shootings have risen across many American cities. The Biden administration says it's working with state and local counterparts to share intelligence and disrupt gun trafficking operations. A debate over crime control strategies features in several midterm election races. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Big sell-off on Wall Street today. The Dow is down nearly 4%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Data just released this afternoon from the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office show voter turnout in last week's primary topped out at more than one million ballots. That translates to nearly 22 percent of registered voters and is the second highest turnout in a state primary since 1990. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, it appears voting by mail is driving the higher turnout. Nearly half the people who cast a ballot in last week's primary voted by mail. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says options to vote from home or in-person before Election Day increase voter participation. It's obvious that voters chose in both parties to take advantage of the options they had to vote by mail and vote early. It's significantly so on the Democratic side. Galvin says other states should follow Massachusetts in allowing permanent, no-excuse absentee voting. Really what it says to other states, if you really want to increase turnout, you want to do this. Forms to request a ballot for the general election in November are being mailed to voters now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The stepmother of a New Hampshire girl who remains missing and is presumed dead will remain jailed following the woman's arrest last week. A judge today revoked bail for Kayla Montgomery. She was arrested Friday after she missed a mandatory court hearing the day before on some unrelated charges to the girl's death. The body of the girl, Harmony Montgomery, has not been found and no one has been charged with her murder. The Boston Public Library Special Collections Department is once again open as of today. It's been under renovation for the past five years at the Central Branch in Copley Square. Items in the collections include early sketches from Robert McCluskey's picture book, Make Way for Ducklings. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events, harvardartmuseums.org. And Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. Thunderstorms soaking the western parts of the state could work their way to Boston, but chances diminish after 9 or 10 tonight. And tomorrow, dry weather's back, so's the sun, bright and breezy, about 80 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution, 
to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A bit of heartening news today from the Census Bureau. Child poverty is at a historic low. That's according to an annual report on income, poverty, and health insurance. And the uninsured rate dropped in 2021 compared to the previous year. But the good news may be short-lived. Here to explain. NPR correspondent Jennifer Ludden, who covers economic inequality. Hey, Jennifer. Hey there. And Selena Simmons-Duffin, who covers health policy. Hello to you. Hi. Um, Jennifer, you kick us off. When we say a record low for child poverty, how low and how did this come about? Uh, it was a substantial drop from last year, about uh, down by nearly half compared to 2020 to 5.2% for child poverty. Now, the overall poverty rate for everyone was just under 8%, a smaller drop. Um, this poverty measure takes into account all kinds of expenses families have, as well as you know that range of pandemic aid a lot of families got. Mm-hmm. And the census officials say the key here was the child tax credit. Um, in 2021, the American rescue plan. Congress boosted that credit and it expanded it to include millions more low-income families and even those who were not working. Uh, Sharon Parrott is with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and she's looked at how those families spend that child tax credit. They spend it on their housing, they spend it on food, they spend it on education. They're able to do some of those extracurricular activities that middle and high-income kids take for granted. They are investing in their kids and their families are able to make ends meet in really important ways. And Parrot says all those things can have really important long-term benefits for kids, like, you know, doing better in school and just being healthier. So some really good news there. Okay, Selena, pick up with the other piece of this, that the uninsured rate fell in 2021, not to a record low, but approaching one. Which is interesting to me because, as you've been reporting, there were all these worries that people would lose coverage during the pandemic. What happened? Right. So census numbers today show that 8.3 percent of Americans, that's about 27.2 million people, did not have health insurance in 2021. So on the flip side, almost 92 percent did have health insurance. And it's true that when the pandemic began, a lot of health insurance experts projected the coverage losses would be devastating. Millions and millions of people losing their jobs, losing their job-based coverage, and then not going to the doctor when they're sick, which would help the virus spread faster. But that is not what happened. And instead, more people now have health insurance, and that is being driven by Medicaid. That is the public health insurance option for people with low incomes. Here's Sabrina Corlett at the Georgetown Center on Health Insurance Reforms. The reason the Medicaid rates have increased is because of a a COVID relief bill that Congress passed in March of 2020. The Families First Coronavirus Response Act essentially said to states, as long as the pandemic is happening, you can't make people prove they still qualify for Medicaid to stay covered. So people can enroll in Medicaid, but you can't kick anyone off. And the census officials who briefed reporters today say this is what has been driving the gains in insurance coverage. But stay with that line you just said, as long as the pandemic is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, if this was a pandemic measure that helped staunch health insurance lo- losses, what happens if the pandemic, when the pandemic ends? 
Yeah, so this measure is going to end too, and that's why the good news may be fleeting. Jamila Michener is a professor of government at Cornell and an expert on Medicaid, and today she pointed out to me that it was a policy move that staved off those pandemic doomsday scenarios. Any of the improvements that we see, whether it's insurance or in poverty, out of these census numbers, are a reflection of political choices. And she says these gains won't continue and will in fact unravel unless policymakers continue to make choices in support of these gains. As it stands now, when the public health emergency ends, and that could be as soon as January, there are estimates that between 13 and 15 million people could end up losing Medicaid coverage. So some will be able to get coverage elsewhere, but millions more may become uninsured. So Jennifer, connect this up. What could what Selena is saying, what could that mean for poverty rates? Absolutely. Millions more expected to go, uh, you know, perhaps this year be back into poverty because that expanded child tax credit ended last December. And, you know, it ran out just as inflation was really starting to climb to what became its historic high. Um, uh, So not good news for families, you know, with children. Uh, The Biden administration and many Democrats wanted to make this expanded child tax credit permanent. The U.S. House actually passed such a measure, but it did not survive in the Senate. And setting aside children for a moment, what about other age groups? Anything notable there? There is. One group that saw more people in poverty last year was seniors. Uh, Now, census officials say this is likely because they're on fixed incomes. And already last year, inflation was starting to tick up, really squeezing their budgets. But again, they point out that Social Security did keep more than 26 million people out of poverty. And that includes several million children being raised by their grandparents. All right. That is NPR's Jennifer Ludden and NPR's Selena Simmons. Duffin, thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. After almost a week on the picket line, Seattle teachers have reached a tentative deal with their school district. The Seattle Education Association, which is the teachers union, is voting today on whether to end the strike. Liliana Fowler from member station KNKX has more. The strike started on what was supposed to be the first day of school. After a rough couple of years full of pandemic disruptions, it was not an ideal start to the school year. But the teachers union says it had an important fight to win. The union says the tentative agreement for a three-year contract maintains or improves student-teacher ratios in special education classes. It also adds mental health support for students and includes raises. The higher pay is especially important to paraprofessionals or teachers' aides like Nicole Bonora. She's a special education aide in the district. She's also a parent. Benora was one of thousands of teachers and other staff in the school district listening in on a Zoom meeting this morning, reviewing a summary of the tentative agreement. Benora says it was one of the most attended union meetings she's ever seen. Even though she's getting a raise, she says for her, the fight wasn't just about the money. If we really want to be inclusionary, and if we really are pushing for equity, and educational justice, then we need to support all our students. And that starts with your students that have the most challenges, the most hurdles. Bonora says her son, who is about to be a high school freshman, volunteered during the strike, but was mostly stuck at home. As a parent, I'm feeling like I really want my kid to go back to school. As an educator, I, I feel relieved that I'm not worse off than I was before. 
Seattle Public Schools says it's not commenting on the tentative agreement, but that the district is looking forward to the start of the school year. For NPR News, I'm Liliana Fowler in Seattle. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As we've been reporting, Ukraine appears to have made stunning progress retaking towns and territory in the east. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says his country's armed forces have regained some 2,400 square miles since launching a surprise counteroffensive in the region around Kharkiv just last week. The first town to be liberated in this counteroffensive was Balaklia. That was September 8th. NPR's Ashley Westerman was in the first group of journalists let into the town today. And she joins me now. Hey, Ashley. Hi. What, what did you see? What's it look like? Yeah, so Balaklia is a small rural town about 60 miles southeast of Kharkiv. And as we know, that's Ukraine's second largest city. And as we rolled into town, we saw a few bombed out vehicles, including some Russian tanks. And they were rusted and they seemed like they'd been there a while. But most of the damage was actually concentrated in the center of town. A handful of blocks had been shelled. And the town was under Russian occupation for six months, Mary Louise. But I honestly didn't see the destruction like what we saw in Bucha and Irpin, uh, those suburbs of Kyiv that were liberated in April. And the people I spoke to were understandably relieved that the Russians had been driven out. Uh, I spoke with Valentina Datschenko, who said it's hard to express in words. We were very happy. We cried and kissed, she says. And it's like she's still in shock that all of this is over. Yeah, very happy now. But were you able to ask people what it was like all these months under Russian occupation? Yes, I spoke with several people who said that there has been no electricity, no water, and no cell service for months. And many people spent a lot of time in their basements because of the intense shelling that was going on and just not wanting to run into Russian soldiers in the streets. Ludmila Verona said the town just wasn't ready for this. We didn't have extra food and other essentials like toiletries and cleaning products, she said. And the children were scared from all the shelling, and we were very cold and hungry. And in a sign that the Russians were unprepared for this, they ransacked people's homes for food and cleared store shelves. Uh, 70-year-old Olga Penchenko says Russian soldiers also went after people's farms. There was a farm with cows nearby and Russian soldiers drank all the milk, she says. Meanwhile, Mary Louise, officials say that so far they've only found five Ukrainian bodies, but there are likely more. And they also say they found evidence of abuse like beatings and torture by Russian forces that could constitute as war crimes. And they'll be taking all of this very seriously moving forward. Yeah. And I imagine the list of what these villages need moving forward must be so long. 
Indeed. Um, first off, they, they need supplies, food, water, and other resources. Humanitarian aid is coming in right now, um, but they also need utilities restored. And, you know, the Kharkiv region is still actually 15% occupied by Russian forces, so the fighting and the shelling may not be over for them. And that's something that the people of Balaklia are definitely aware of. And Pierre's Ashley Westerman, she was one of the first journalists to see the just liberated town of Balaklia in Ukraine today. Ashley, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is 90.9 WBUR. We have an alert now from the MBTA. Several commuter rail trains that run in and out of South Station this afternoon have been delayed, in some cases by more than an hour. The T reports the culprit is a signal issue near South Station. The problem started before 4 o'clock. The T just reported the signal problem has now been resolved, but that residual delays may persist for a while longer. And once again, that's on the uh, commuter rail train, all different rail lines that run through South Station. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Innuendo, now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control in hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo, Route 9 Natick and Innuendo.com. And LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Jeff Maldor is restless. It's not enough that he's been an influential force in American roots, jazz, and blues since the 1960s, or that he sings, arranges, composes, and plays everything from the guitar to the kazoo. Maldor cast his gaze abroad for his latest recording. He spent about a decade traveling to and from Amsterdam, where he assembled a group of top-notch European classical musicians to play distinctly non-European and mostly non-classical works. Tell me what time do the trains come through your town? result is his last letter. It's an elegantly packaged double LP box set and CD set, both with booklets. It opens with this song, Black Horse Blues, written by Blind Lemon Jefferson in the 1920s. Your music, including in this song, spans time and genres and geography. And I want to get to the geography first, because you went back and forth for, what, like 10 years to the Netherlands to find musicians in Amsterdam who you found who would be able to 
do justice to music that in some cases they had never heard. Tell us about that process. There's an open-mindedness there, especially with these classical players who, if you're in one of those orchestras, even if you're a principal, and even though you're playing some of the most beautiful music ever written, uh, they're very open-minded to try something else. What I picture you doing is kind of taking by the hand an artist whose music you heard that maybe from the 1920s, and I want to talk specifically about one of them, Vera Hall, and how you brought it into the present. And you don't necessarily modernize the music, you kind of molderize the music. And I want to hear how you did that. And so I have an example of her song, Bull Weevil. And as as many people will remember, the Bull Weevil was this beetle that was nasty and really ugly and uh, fed on cotton blossoms and devastated the cotton industry in the American South in the 1920s. During that time, Vera Hall, an African-American woman, recorded this song a cappella. Hey, hey, Bull Weevil. Where's your native home? Way down in the bottom Among the cotton cones So tell us about this version. First time I saw the bow weevil He's sitting on the square The next time I seed him He had his family there well, this version was done with Jim Queskin. I've made it slightly comedic. It's a little bouncier and more sort of authentic in terms of American uh, string band music. What was your kind of like your guiding principle aside from not doing a cappella? There, there are no guiding principles in my <laughs> in my factory. Not that you're unprincipled, but but so so what did it? So how did you end up with this sound? I cannot tell you what my process is. It's it changes all the time. It's mostly just what I feel. Tell us about the evolution from this version to this one that we're going to hear now with the players from the Netherlands. Well, tell me, Boeva, how'd you get the great long bill? I got it down in Texas, among the western hills. Among the western hills. Among the western hills Way out in Texas Among the western hills We're hearing here someone's playing the banjo. That's Jeff Moldor. That's Jeff Moldor. I've heard of him. And then the penny whistle? Uh, the penny whistle is being played by the bassoonist, which is a pretty <laughs> rare double. She could just play anything. What did you tell them? Did they need to know the history of the song as, as they were about to record it? Well, an interesting question, because what I did to get their attention was I printed out a picture of a bull weevil. Uh, <laughs> with its long yeah. proboscis. Yeah, and I put it on each music stand <laughs> and watched them, you know, <laughs> Start to turn green. <laughs> and, uh, Why did you do that? lighten things up and make sure that they could just relax and this is not the kind of rhythm that is uh, difficult uh, for a classical player. There are chamber musicians. I mean, that's their stock and trade. They're extraordinarily versatile, but was there kind of a cultural difference? Because you're talking about music drawn from the American South, you're talking about rural blues music in some cases, early jazz. I didn't expect 
there to be a perfect translation. I didn't want there to be. I think they Europeanized me by the end as much <laughs> as I Americanized them. What does it mean? Meaning I started to write in a more European classical form, which ended up in the octet. Let's talk about the octet. This is in three movements, and this is where the name of the album is drawn from, his last letter. It comes from a tragic event in your family history, and we're going to be hearing the music. But tell us about this letter that came to you from a cousin that gave you the idea for this work. Well, it's exactly what happened. A a lawyer for a, a cousin who was quite older than I was who passed away sent me a box, and in it were pictures and letters, which was wonderful because it was stuff from the 1860s and 70s. And my great-grandfather was a, uh, a navigator on, on, on ships. He was in the Navy. And um, so his ship that he was on in uh, Yokohama, when he took off in the morning, was rammed by a British frigate and uh, sunk very quickly. But the night before, the packet boat came and took the mail. So this letter was written hours before he, he perished. And it was very loving, and I'll see you soon, and we're on our way to Canton, and then we'll head home. And it got to my heart. And the voice we're going to hear now is that of Lady Claren McFadden, a mezzo-soprano, who is portraying the scene after your great-grandmother received this letter. Last night she slept in a soft She dreamed of a ship on the rolling sea. Uh, I visited his grave because they, some of the people did survive, and they have a quite a nice thing in the cemetery in uh, Yokohama. So mm. I've gone there and paid my respects a few times. Actually. Oh my gosh! Wow. I want to ask you a little bit more about working with this chamber orchestra, the Dutch musicians. And let's take one of the earlier pieces in the album, and that's Duke Ellington's Lady of the Lavender Mist. Let's hear a little bit of that. And I know you have such an appreciation for these musicians, and I want you to tell us what they brought to the music. Right off the bat, this accordion player turned out to be a genius, Gert Wattenauer. The clarinetist, first clarinetist, got the most beautiful sound. He plays in jazz in the Metropole Jazz Orchestra. And so the combination of those two made it just perfect. I couldn't do this tune in a sensuous, slow, funky way because, once again, Duke already did that. You just can't, you can't beat that stuff. So I did it more like a hot club of France, uh, Fred Astaire visiting Paris, and he goes into this club and uh, starts dancing with a young lady. And that's what sort of I brought to the tune. Jeff Muldor, thank you. Well, you're entirely welcome, Lisa.
Lady of the Lavender Mist by Duke Ellington, one of the songs on Jeff Muldor's new album called His Last Letter. By the way, Muldor used to be part of the early Harvard Square Cambridge music scene. He has moved back to the area from New York. He says this is where he belongs. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Twitter's former security chief turned whistleblower says the company's cybersecurity failures make it vulnerable to exploitation. They don't know what data they have, where it lives, or where it came from, and so, unsurprisingly, they can't protect it. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, September 13th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also head. Volodymyr Zelensky's former spokesperson writes about working with the Ukrainian president. In her new book, we'll hear about it. More moms across the U.S. are microdosing with psychedelic mushrooms to cope with the stresses of parenting. We'll hear about what we know about the effect on the brain. And thousands of hospital nurses in Minnesota walked off the job yesterday. Understaffing is an issue. This problem has been festering for decades, and we realize that we need to take action now because if we don't address this problem now, the system, I'm afraid, is just going to buckle until it breaks. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. On a day that Wall Street plunged on newly released government numbers showing inflation remains a potent force affecting the economy, President Biden spoke at the White House about his administration's efforts to ease the sting. Biden touting the climate change and drug pricing legislation dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act, despite the fact the $430 billion package would do little to contain price pressures in the near term. Exactly four weeks ago today, I signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law the single most important legislation passed in the Congress to combat inflation, and one of the most significant laws in our nation's history, in my view. Labor Department's closely watched consumer price index today showed inflation in August running at 8.3 percent above a year ago. Core inflation, excluding volatile food and energy, also rose. Fed has made it clear it intends to boost interest rates again when it meets later this month. That sent Wall Street into freefall today. The Dow dropped 1,276 points. The Nasdaq was down 632 points to drop of more than 5%. 
The number of people without health insurance in 2021 fell compared to the previous year. Now 8.3 percent of people are uninsured at near record low. More from NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Census officials say the reason more people were insured in 2021 is because of Medicaid. That's the public health insurance option for people with low incomes. Sabrina Corlett is at the Georgetown Center on Health Insurance Reforms. The reason the Medicaid rates have increased is because of a, a COVID relief bill that Congress passed in March of 2020. The law told states they couldn't disenroll people during the public health emergency, but that declaration is set to end, maybe as soon as January. An estimated 15 million people could lose Medicaid when that happens. Some will get coverage elsewhere, but millions more will become uninsured. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Congress has set aside billions for individual tax credits and rebates aimed at cutting pollution. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports there's help for Americans trying to navigate the programs. CleanEnergy.gov is a place where U.S. residents can get more user-friendly information on how to take advantage of tax credits and rebates for things like energy-efficient home heating systems and electric vehicles. It also has information about which programs have a cutoff based on income and which don't. Many of the new law's provisions kick in next year, but some are available immediately. So this tool can help people compare upgrading now versus in the future. For programs that will take a while to get off the ground, senior White House officials say the website will be regularly updated with new information. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. The nation's freight rail lines face a midnight Friday deadline to reach a new contract with engineers and conductors. Railroads have already informed some customers they may stop accepting certain types of shipments. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. On the MBTA, a signal problem that's been causing commuter rail delays of over an hour has been repaired. The MBTA says the issue happened near South Station and caused delays on all rail lines into and out of the station. Trains are now running through the area as they normally do, but the T says travelers may still have to deal with some residual delays for a while. Officials with the MBTA are confident that all Orange Line, uh, the entire Orange Line, that is, will reopen as scheduled next Monday. The T said today more than 80 percent of rail and track work along the line is complete. Additionally, MBTA General Manager Stephen Poftak says the agency will have more than 60 new subway cars on the line when it reopens. We have enough new cars available to run an entire service with the new vehicles. Now, we're not going to be able to run those vehicles round the clock. There's serv- those, those vehicles will come in and out of service as maintenance needs dictates. So we will still have some older train sets on the line. Orange Line service shut down about three weeks ago. Boston is formally challenging the federal government's 2020 census count of the city. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, just over 675,000 people were living in Boston two years ago. But Mayor Michelle Wu's office claims the bureau undercounted the city's college student population, its foreign-born population, and the number of people housed in correctional facilities in Boston. City officials say the lower-than-expected population count will result in fewer federal resources for Boston if that count stands. The Plymouth branch of the Registry of Motor Vehicles is temporarily closed due to flooding. RMV officials say a burst pipe is to blame. Authorities say customers should go to other nearby branches or AAA offices that offer registry services. Existing appointments for this week at the Plymouth branch will be honored at the Taunton or South Yarmouth RMVs. Keep an eye to the sky for possible thunderstorms in parts of the state. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says for the next several hours, the greatest risk will be to our west. 
Thunderstorm action will be focused mainly in the central and western part of the state where some severe cells are possible. For Boston, we'll need to be on guard until about 10 p.m. for the chance of a thunderstorm to blow through. Downpours, gusty wind, lightning, the biggest concerns. But again, the risk is much higher to our north and west. There are some downpours now in the Sandwich area on Cape Cod and pockets of the Berkshires. 72 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds and showers should move out tonight, leaving behind clear skies and setting the stage for a sunny, dry day tomorrow should warm to about 80 degrees. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Twitter's former security chief raised his hand and pledged to tell the truth on Capitol Hill today. He then explained how the social media platform is rife with security problems, that it has even knowingly hired foreign agents, people who likely had access to private company systems, and users' personal data. The company's cybersecurity failures make it vulnerable to exploitation, causing real harm to real people. That's Peter Zotko, who was fired by Twitter in January. NPR tech reporter Raquel Maria Dillon has been following this story. Hey there. Hi. Can you start off by explaining to us more about these foreign agents that Zotko says Twitter hires? Well, uh, Zotko described one case in which the Indian government coerced Twitter into hiring two of its agents. The company went along with it because it didn't want to lose access to such a large market. Zacco says that puts company systems at risk and also user information, which is a big deal because a lot of Indian activists go on Twitter to protest their government. Now, Zacco is not just some disgruntled worker. Twitter hired him in 2020 to shore up security there after a really big hack. And he is a big deal in the cybersecurity community where people call him by his hacker handle, Mudge. He's worked with the Defense Department and made his name as a hacker way back in the 90s. Okay, so besides the foreign agents, did he say that Twitter had other security problems? Yeah. Zacco says the company doesn't do a good job of controlling who inside Twitter has access to all of its data. You can think of it this way, which is it doesn't matter who has keys if you don't have any locks on the doors. Twitter has lots of data, nothing new there. Plenty of tech companies do have a lot of data on their users. But Zatko says Twitter is doing a uniquely bad job at keeping user data private. He says Twitter is a decade behind when it comes to basic security practices. And in the tech world, 10 years is a long time. He says the blame goes right to the top. Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. Zatko described the company as just moving from crisis to crisis because leaders don't stop to examine their systems or procedures or their company culture. Okay, that is a long list of accusations. Raquel, how is Twitter responding? A spokesperson for Twitter says these allegations are riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies. The company also defended its hiring practices. Twitter's CEO was invited to testify today, but Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley said he declined. Parag Agrawal says an appearance before the committee could have jeopardized the company's lawsuit against Elon Musk, Tesla's CEO, and Grassley would have none of that. The business of this committee and protecting Americans from foreign influence is more important 
than Twitter's civil litigation in Delaware. If these allegations are true, I don't see how Mr. Agrawal can uh, maintain his position at Twitter. Agrawal is a pretty new CEO, but he's an insider. He was an engineer who worked his way to the top. Zacco says that means he should have known about all of this. When Zacco tried to raise these issues with him, he says he was ignored. In the last 20 or so seconds we have left, there's that lawsuit that Twitter filed against Elon Musk. How does that play into all of this? Zacco made it look like Twitter is not to be trusted. That case in Delaware has turned into a super complicated knockdown drag out legal fight. And that issue is whether Musk has to buy Twitter for $44 billion, which okay. is what he agreed to. After Zacco came forward with these allegations, Musk seized on them mm. as another reason to get out of the deal. He's definitely okay. watching because uh, he tweeted today a movie popcorn emoji. Okay. <laughs> he says he seems to be enjoying the show the Senate put on. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon, thank you. Thanks. After a bruising election, Kenya has a new president. NPR's Ada Peralta reports on what the transfer of power means for democracy. Just days ago, there were fears that President Uhuru Kenyatta wouldn't even show up at this stadium in Nairobi. But in front of thousands, Kenyatta handed a ceremonial sword to President-elect William Samoy Ruto. And just like that, two sworn enemies presided over a cordial, peaceful transfer of power. I, William Samoy Ruto. This was a contentious election in Kenya. The country's longtime opposition alleged vast rigging, and both sides accused each other of bribing public officials. But this was also one of the most transparent elections. The Electoral Commission published raw results, and when the Supreme Court reviewed the electoral conduct, they found the election was pretty much free, fair, and credible. When they issued their judgment, the opposition leader reluctantly accepted. In his inaugural address, the newly minted President Ruto was conciliatory. I will work with all Kenyans, irrespective of who they voted for. In the past, elections in Kenya have erupted into violence. Now, elections seem routine, even boring. Analysts say it's a good thing. It's a sign that democracy has taken root in a region where authoritarianism reigns. Ada Pralta, NPR News. Thousands of mothers have turned to taking tiny amounts of psychedelic mushrooms to relieve stress. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry reports. We're in a North Denver suburb, and it's really hot. Just a few days before school starts, Ariel is home and cooking with her four children. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Pop up and just like pops. Yeah, I almost touched the top. Ariel went through a tough divorce in the middle of the pandemic, and like thousands of other mothers across the country, looked for something to quietly help her. But what she took may surprise you a powdered psychedelic mushroom capsule. A therapist suggested she try natural therapies, so she turned to psychedelics and sought out a support group. Because psilocybin is still largely illegal across the country, most of the mothers wanted to use only their first names to protect their families and their professions. I don't think that I would be nearly as present as I am right now had it not been for, for psychedelics and for the healing that I've gotten from it. This burgeoning mommy microdosing movement has taken off nationally, psilocybin researchers and advocates say. There are support groups and social media followings. Moms are microdosing and doing yoga, watching Disney movies with their kids and going to parks. 
The mothers I spoke to said they sought out mushrooms because they're more natural than prescription antidepressant medications, and they leave no hangover, like alcohol. My name is Tracy T. I live in Denver, Colorado. I have one daughter. She's 11. And I am the steward of Moms on Mushrooms, which... T was a critically acclaimed comedian who lost her business during the pandemic. She was also struggling with motherhood, watching her daughter at home all the time, unhappily clocking in to online school. T took a course about microdosing, which she calls her medicine, and she says it changed her life. She now runs support groups for mothers specifically embarking on that experience. She says microdosing helps moms sit with their stress and problems, not run away from them. And we've moved past, I think, wanting to guzzle five bottles of wine. We're craving something deeper and we're definitely craving community. Research is ongoing across the world on the benefits of psilocybin among people with treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. Numerous studies have found that it helps those problems. The FDA has actually granted it breakthrough therapy status. All that said, less is known about taking tinier doses of psychedelics. People who are microdosing, what I would say is that they're basically experimenting on themselves. Dr. Josh Woolley is a psychiatry professor at the University of California, San Francisco. He is currently overseeing a psilocybin clinical trial among healthy adults. I asked him whether it's okay for people taking care of children to take a psychedelic mind-altering drug. It's not so dangerous that it would be so obvious, but we really don't have good epidemiological studies. Are there any bad outcomes? Are there good outcomes? So there's still a lot of work to be done. Kids are different today. I hear every mother say, mother needs something today to calm her down. The notion that moms need some sort of outside substance for survival has been around for generations. From Mother's Little Helper, a Rolling Stone song about Valium, to the two martini lunches, to current tropes about mommy's sippy cups and mama needs wine t-shirts. Dr. Neil Epperson is chair of psychiatry at the University of Colorado Medical School. My generation was the Chardonnay generation. <laughs> Dr. Epperson is known internationally for her work in studying women's mental health. She draws a pretty big distinction between motherhood distress and an actual diagnosed mental illness. She is sympathetic to motherhood, especially today. And she hopes everyone treads carefully on replacing psychedelics with known treatments for anxiety and depression. And I feel like we have to slow down, do the research, before we just all of a sudden start opening up all these treatment centers and saying we know what we're doing. Would you do that if it was cancer? I don't think so. Microdosing mushrooms is different than taking a larger dose and then having a trip. Most of the moms take capsules in such small increments that they say it barely registers a buzz. But after taking those doses over a few days, they swear by how different they feel. Some have even gone off their antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications on the drugs. Ben Lightburn co-founded Filament Health, which is funding the first FDA-approved clinical trial of natural psilocybin. In the scale of could this help or is this dangerous, Compared to what's already out there, I think it's fair to say that the risk of self-medicating with psilocybin is relatively low. There is something deeper here. Researchers are looking at lack of structural support for women, or maybe too much pressure on parents in today's times. 
Major depressive disorder is currently the leading cause of disease burden for women internationally. The moms making these decisions, though, say they aren't necessarily trying to escape, but that psychedelics allow them to be better in the present. For NPR News, I'm Allison Sherry in Denver. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, what it's like to work with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, his former spokesperson tells us. That's next on All Things Considered. On Wall Street, a big Tuesday tumble today. The Dow had its worst day since June of 2020 as it lost nearly 4%, 1,276 points, to close at 31,105. S&P surrendered 4.32% to finish at 3,933. The Nasdaq lost a little more than 5% to finally settle at 11,634. Mass Nurses Association is accusing Stewart St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Brighton of violating its contract with the nurses' union. The union says it filed 21 charges of unfair labor practices against the hospital with the National Labor Relations Board. It says uh, the several aspects of the contract were violated, including safety and staffing. Hospital's owner, Stewart Healthcare, issued a statement saying it has, quote, great respect for the negotiating process and our dedicated nursing staff. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app when you're out running errands or out for a run. Clouds are pretty heavy out there right now. A few shots of sunshine in the Boston area. Humidity still on high. Thunderstorms are mostly happening out west in the Berkshires and then in the Sandwich area on the Cape. Overnight tonight, clearing skies, sunshine tomorrow. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On a Saturday afternoon in May 2019, a young Ukrainian journalist named Yulia Mendel got a phone call. The caller was a headhunter who wanted to know whether Mendel would be willing to work around the clock. And the job the headhunter had in mind? press secretary to the brand new president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Well, a few days later, Mendel was summoned to Zelensky's office for a job interview. I told him if a man from a poor background from some Ukrainian provincial city can become uh, the president of the country in a fully democratic way and that a girl from the same poor background can become his press secretary, then what is it if not a Ukrainian dream? Mendel spent the next two years as his spokesperson. She says even though she and Zelensky shared a vision for their country, it could be hard to break through in meetings with his advisors. Imagine me 
32-year-old female sitting at the table with all those men who were richer, were more powerful, were actually greedy to influence the president. And they didn't want, you know, to listen just to me. But President Zelensky always was giving me the voice, was asking what I think. Uh, he was listening to me. And in that way, he was making me equal. Mendel writes about her experience working with Zelensky in her new book, The Fight of Our Lives. In it, she describes how, as war loomed at the start of this year, she hadn't bothered to find a bomb shelter near her apartment in Kyiv. She didn't think she'd need one. Like many Ukrainians, she thought a Russian invasion was unlikely. It's even now very difficult to believe that it happened what it happened. I think if you were in Kyiv even two months later, you will understand that Kyiv was absolutely different. It was just a fortress with a lot of checkpoints, a very strict curfew, a lot of people with rifles, absolutely empty from ordinary citizens. But if you go back to those days right before the war, yeah, part of why Ukrainians didn't believe there might be a war was because their leaders were telling them so. They were downplaying that possibility. Zelensky was telling the country, look, don't panic, carry on with your lives. In hindsight, was that a mistake? Yeah, many people did not believe you're right. Among them were a lot of politicians. As far as we know, uh, Zelensky already said that he knew the information. So this is the issue. A lot of people who were telling about uh, the plans of Russia to invade, they were saying to be prepared. And we were preparing without the public statements, without explaining that the war was coming. But on the other hand, what could we do? Dig trenches when Russia was going to hit us from the sky? Like we were doing what was possible to do? What stands out to you as, as someone who has been a journalist, who has briefed journalists as a press secretary, who knows how to craft a message? What has stood out to you about how both Zelensky and Vladimir Putin have messaged, have used the media, have social media, traditional media um, during these months of war? Russia is fully isolated in information. Uh, Russian media uh, tells only the Kremlin message and propaganda and lies and manipulates. It even doesn't have any logics in the messages. Ukraine fully collaborates with international media and with American media. And we are very grateful for this because American media did amazing job to help us spread the word and to stand for uh, Ukraine, to unite the world around this battle for democracy. Um, but you, if you ask me about Zelensky and Putin, they are really from different age and they have different worldview. Uh, Putin is from old age. And when I mean when I say this, I don't mean age. I mean, they have... They are outdated. He and his team, they have a very outdated worldview. And you've and, met him, we should mention. Uh, yeah, we met We met uh, during the Normandy meeting in December 2019. And, you know, he surprised me for the reason that everybody considers that he is such a strong man because he developed this narrative. But in fact, when I saw him negotiating the peace, he was not strong at all. He was really a very weak negotiator for the reason that for the last 23 years, he has never negotiated anything. He just orders something and waits that people deliver the result. As you look at your country today, um, 
Well, I should mention you're from southern Ukraine, from Kherson, which has been in the headlines. It was the it was the first and the the only big Ukrainian city that fell to Russia. Right. It is still under Russian occupation. Ukraine is fighting hard to take it back. What do you hear from there? What do you know of conditions there now? Well, there is one very important village there. It's a personally important village because the grandparents of uh, from both sides were living there. Uh, and because I spent there my first years as a child, I read all the books in the local library. I ate a lot of cherries and apricots. I made there my first steps and had first friends. And it's fully destroyed these days, unfortunately. There is nothing there anymore. My granny, who is 82 years old, was staying in the basement with wounded leg for weeks when Russians were destroying her house, shelling her garden. She was shrinking from all those heats. Thanks God she's in Kiev now. She was lucky to escape and we're taking care about her. But the situation is really very difficult. Some of the villages are fully destroyed. Uh, people are kidnapped. For instance, the former mayor of Kherson, Ukrainian mayor, he is kidnapped and nothing is known about him for months. People are tortured. There are a lot of awful stories from there. But I also know that people are praying that Ukrainian army comes there and are waiting every second to know that they are closer and closer. Well, I'm so sorry for this village that meant so much to you. I'm glad your granny is okay. It, it, Thank you. It makes me think it, it's been an awful year for Ukraine, of course. Um, but I was thinking of you and preparing to interview you as I followed all the news this past weekend of this big Ukrainian advance in the Northeast, this very successful assault against Russian troops. And it made me think of the very last words of your book, which are, and I will quote, I have always believed in Ukraine and I always will. Ukraine is the value for millions of Ukrainians. And that's why we did not leave Ukraine during the war. And that's why everybody tries to contribute to the victory. And we are probably the target for Russia. But at the same time, we are not victims. We are fighters. I know that many countries believe that, believed that Ukraine would collapse in days or hours. But we've shown the world that we stand there for independence, for the right to have choice, for the right to have democracy. So we just hope that the world would stand with us shoulder to shoulder until this terrible war is ended. We've been speaking with Yulia Mindel. She was press secretary to President Zelensky from 2019 to 2021. Her memoir is The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World. Yulia Mendel, thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox start up a short stint with the Yankees tonight at Fenway Park. Nick Pavetta's on the mound for Boston. Garrett Cole for the Yanks. Sox have 12 more home games across four series left in the regular season. Weather should cooperate for the game at Fenway tonight. There is now rain over the Sandwich area on the Cape and lots of rain out in the Berkshires. But for the Boston area, clouds should move out tonight, leaving clear skies. Then tomorrow, sunshine. Highs up around 80 degrees. 
This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees in the Boston area at 5.30. One year ago, a trio of Broadway's biggest hits, Hamilton, Wicked, and The Lion King, came back to life. COVID still had the power to close shows and keep audiences away, but the survival of live performance is a celebration. We made it. We're thriving. Let's keep going. Reflections on a Broadway anniversary, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukrainian forces are quickly liberating towns in the east and more slowly in the south of the country in their counteroffensive against Russian control. Ukraine's president says they've now retaken more than 2,300 square miles back from Russian forces in less than two weeks, as videos posted online show Russian tanks left behind on the front lines. NPR's Greg Myrie says this is encouraging for allies who continue to support Ukraine. This is likely to change the tenor of the debate, and particularly in Europe, where there have been doubts about whether Ukraine could do this. And if the front lines were essentially a stalemate and there wasn't a lot of territory changing hands, shouldn't those countries be talking about a way to, to end the fighting? I think now we're more likely to hear about what does Ukraine need to potentially keep this offensive going? NPR's Greg Myrie, the fight is moving slower in the south, but there are reports that Ukraine has regained a major town near the city of Kherson and continues to press forward. Firefighters in Northern California are taking advantage of cooler, wetter weather. From member station KQED, Keith Mezaguchi reports on a blaze burning east of Sacramento in the Sierra foothills. The mosquito fire has burned roughly 50,000 acres in Placer and El Dorado counties. At least 25 homes have been destroyed. Jonathan Pangborn is with CAL FIRE. We are seeing historically dry fuels. So it's presenting a challenge to firefighters. More than 11,000 people remain under mandatory evacuation orders. In less than a week, the mosquito fire has grown into the second largest wildfire in California this year. For NPR News, I'm Keith Mizuguchi in San Francisco. Stocks finished sharply lower on Wall Street after the latest report on consumer prices showed inflation isn't slowing as much as hoped. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. There are delays on all commuter rail lines in and out of South Station in Boston today. The T says a signal problem this afternoon is to blame. Even though the problem was resolved before 5 o'clock, the MBTA says residual delays continue. Most of those delays are in the range of about 15 minutes. Earlier, some trains were delayed by more than an hour. Federal officials have declined to appear at a state oversight hearing on the MBTA. Massachusetts lawmakers requested members of the Federal Transit Administration to appear before the Joint Committee on Transportation tomorrow. The committee said this afternoon that officials with the agency declined to take part. Those officials referred legislators to previous public statements they've made regarding the state's transit system. The Federal Transit Administration released a critical report on the MBTA safety practices last month. A 17-year-old was arraigned today in connection with the stabbing of a student inside a Boston high school yesterday. Police say the juvenile suspect turned himself in hours after the attack at the Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester. A judge in Dorchester Juvenile Court set bail at $250 and told the suspect to have no contact with the victim. The victim suffered non-life-threatening injuries and was transported to a local hospital. The American Cancer Society is applauding President Biden's renewed commitment to cancer research. 
The president announced the next steps in his administration's cancer moonshot yesterday in Boston. Mark Heimovitz is the director of the government relations for the American Cancer Society in Massachusetts. He says the announcement is a big deal for our region, which is already steeped in biomedical research. And we see that in Cambridge, all around greater Boston at Worcester, and the funding that will be available for the cancer moonshot will just grow that even more and have a obviously meaningful scientific impact, but also an economic impact as well. The moonshot includes an executive order to expand government support for the biotech industry. And members of the public should call law enforcement if they see racist or anti-Semitic displays. That is the message from the Anti-Defamation League of New England. Two hate-filled banners were reported over this weekend over highways in Saugus and Danvers. ADL New England director Robert Treston says it's important to report such displays even if they are not technically criminal. There's always a danger that someone will be inspired or incited to commit an act of violence or to target someone because of that message. And so while it may not be a criminal threat, uh, it still is dangerous. Trustin says this group has tracked an increase in these types of incidents in recent years. Red Sox are on to play the Yankees tonight and in the forecast. Mostly gray, pretty muggy uh, this afternoon and this evening. Thunderstorms, some of them dangerous out in the western part of the state. And right now there are some pockets over Cape Cod as well. Tonight, we should have clearing skies eventually, and then tomorrow, sunny, gusty breezes, highs about 80 degrees, more sunshine ahead for Thursday. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Approximately 15,000 nurses in Minnesota are now on the second day of a three-day strike. The Minnesota Nurses Association argues their nurses are overworked, hospitals are understaffed, and patients are overcharged for care. And the affected hospitals are hiring temporary nurses from across the country in order to backfill. Let's bring in Chris Rubish, who is first vice president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. Chris, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So your president, Mary Turner, says that this is not about wages exactly. What is this strike about? Our first and foremost priority is making sure that nurses have a voice in the staffing and scheduling process, in the care that we deliver, and in how we are delivering our care at the bedside. And that means that we need a voice in the staffing and scheduling process. We need the protections to use our clinical judgment when delivering patient care, and if needed, when refusing assignments that are unsafe for the safety of our other patients on the floor. And that's really our focus in these negotiations. Your group has decided to limit the strike to just three days. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is? Yeah, so for nurses and for like many other professions uh, in the human service industry, it can be really gut-wrenching for us to make a decision to walk off the job, to leave the people we serve. That's why we're nurses. That's why we're in the profession that we're in. But, you know, we just have realized that the conditions are such that we can't be silent. We, we can't 
not respond to this. And so we made the really difficult decision to take this strike. We hope that three days is enough and we're going to come back to the table after these three days and hopefully resume constructive dialogue with management. Spokespeople for the affected hospital systems have blamed this strike on nurses, and they say that the MNA has refused attempts at neutral mediation. How do you respond to that? You know, I think we're not refusing mediation outright. We're refusing mediation right now. And and part of that is because mediators are there to help us reach a deal, to help the parties, you know, find common ground. And we haven't seen a hospital willing to find any ground at all, let alone common ground. My own facility, we have rewritten our staffing proposals from scratch three times. And only on Saturday night at the 11th hour did the hospital respond to our staffing proposal for the first time. So I don't think a mediator would have really pushed them to find common ground when they weren't wanting to look at the ground at all. And just to make sure I understand, when you say your staffing proposal, is that like how many nurses are working at any given time or for what length of shifts or what does that look like? We understand that nursing shortage, the acute healthcare worker shortage, is a complex problem. And so we proposed a solution that included staffing and scheduling language, language to protect nurses from discipline for refusing assignments that they deemed were unsafe, as well as other things. Obviously, the pandemic has stretched many healthcare workers incredibly thin, but nurses that we've talked to over the last two years, they often say that chronic understaffing, it predates the pandemic. Is that your experience in the state of Minnesota? Absolutely. I've been a nurse for seven years now. I know and work with many nurses who have been uh, in the field for decades longer than that. This pandemic certainly shown a bright spotlight on the crisis of understaffing and worker shortages in the healthcare industry. But this problem has been festering for decades. And we realize that we need to take action now because if we don't address this problem now, the system, I'm afraid, is just going to buckle until it breaks. And Chris, what would you like patients to understand about the strike? We really want patients to know that we are keeping their care at the center of our negotiations. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We don't want to be on the streets. We want to be at the bedside caring for patients. But we simply can't be silent anymore because the care that we deliver them is just too important to us. That's Chris Rubish, first vice president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we've reached out to affected hospitals in Minnesota for comment, but we haven't yet heard back. A Navy arson trial is about to get underway more than two years after fire destroyed the USS Bonham Richard. The trial comes as the Navy continues to unravel why the fire on the warship became one of the worst peacetime disasters in its history. Steve Walsh with KPBS in San Diego has the story. Beginning on July 12, 2020, the USS Bonham Richard burned for nearly five days in San Diego Bay. Senior Chief Michael Robert Penny remembers it well. It was horrifying. It was the biggest fire I've ever seen in my life. A lot of sailors did a lot of hard work to try and save that ship, and unfortunately, it was just too big. The fire was too large. Penny was off that Sunday morning. By the time he arrived at Naval Base San Diego, the ship was in flames. Penny became one of the Navy investigators on the origins of the fire. He hasn't spoken publicly about the disaster until now. The bottom Richard was being renovated when the fire broke out. In addition, Penny says they were shorthanded that morning. Lack of experience, lack of training. That coupled with uh, the loss of electrical power on board. When an explosion sent debris hurtling into the nearby USS Fitzgerald, commanders ordered the power to the pier cut so the ships could make an emergency exit. 
cutting power to firefighters. Darren Hall is with Miramar Fire Academy and a captain with the Coronado Fire Department with 25 years experience. He says nothing compares with the Bonham Richard fire. Not in my career. This has probably been the largest one I've been familiar with on the bay in recent memory. He says local firefighters are invited to train with the Navy, though Navy reports also say mutual aid agreements with local departments are decades old. Fires on board ships are so different, they aren't even part of the curriculum for beginning firefighters. The first part is, it's all metal. So your, your heat that's going to be conducting through where you're walking on, uh, different floors of the ship, when you're looking for where the seat of the fire is, it could be deep inside of the ship. There are still key questions about how the Bonham Richard fire started. Ship fires are actually fairly common. Nonetheless, Seaman Apprentice Ryan Sawyer Mays is charged with arson and set to face a court-martial later this month. His attorneys want to introduce evidence of another small fire that broke out on the nearby USS Essex that same morning. Gary Barthel was part of Mays' legal team. He says arson can be hard to prove, especially when there's extensive damage. Mays has maintained his innocence throughout, and whether it can be proven that it was an arson or not, I think that's one area that needs to be processed. In military court, the admiral in charge has the final word, but one reason the case has taken so long to come to trial is a hearing officer actually ruled the Navy didn't have enough evidence to convict Mays. She did not believe, based on this evidence, that the government would be able to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt and recommended that the case not go to a general court-martial. Penny, who investigated the fire, is now head of damage control on the USS Portland a ship very similar to the USS Bonham Richard. Penny pushes the crew of his new ship. We do drills constantly. We train the crew constantly. I have changed the way that we do training on here. Every single sailor from the captain down to the newest sailor on board is required to don a firefighting ensemble. Penny worries that it could happen again. Every day is filled with, with some type of anxiety. You know, uh, after seeing the BHR, I would be lying if I didn't say that it is I, I am worried every moment. At least 20 officers and sailors were disciplined after the fire on the Bonham Richard. Meanwhile, the Navy waits for a jury to decide what caused the fire that destroyed the billion-dollar warship. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in San Diego. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Ten years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that sentencing juveniles to mandatory life without parole is unconstitutional. Since then, more than 900 people who thought they would die in prison have been released through courts, clemency, or parole. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson met a few of them in Washington this month. They came to the nation's capital for what they called a freedom party. 110 people, once sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, met to share their stories. Christy Cheremy entered prison in Louisiana two weeks after her 16th birthday. It took her 25 years to win release. She remembers the day she finally ran into the arms of her mother in February 2019. As funny as this may sound, um, we were never able to uh, run in the institution. And so I had my family prepared for when I walked outside of the gate that we would run through the parking lot and make a lap because I just had to get that <laughs> burst of energy out, you know, with that excitement. 
Since then, Sheremy's worked to help other incarcerated people transition home. That's what Don Jones does, too. Jones spent 26 years in prison in Pennsylvania before his release three years ago. At this conference in Washington, he's happy to be around other people who understand what he's feeling. It's rare to get an opportunity to be in a room with people having similar experiences, you know, and talking to, uh, to a lot of guys and the women. It's like, I'm not strange. Behind bars, Jones helped start a program called Real Street Talk that won national recognition from the Trump administration. I'm one of the only prisoners probably in the country who got a citation from Jeff, from Jeff Sessions' uh, Justice Department, which was, to me was like, seriously? But Jones says he's not unusual. There's men and women inside the institutions, man, that raised me. You know, they showed me how to do things properly. You know, and I want people to know that it's safe to let lifers out. It's safe to let people out of, out of prison. Jones says the recidivism rate for juveniles who were sentenced to life in prison and ultimately released is very low. But he says he knows the political rhetoric on crime is heating up as shootings and murders plague many cities. The former lifers say that debate misses a key point, that people convicted of crimes as children and adolescents when their brains are still developing have the capacity to change. Jody Kent-Levy co-directs the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, which organized the conference. She says there's been significant change in the past decade. In 2012, there were five states that banned life without parole for children. Today, it's 25 states and another six that have nobody serving the sentence. So it's been a very rapid rate of, of change. Still, she says there's a lot of work for advocates to do. A campaign is underway in Michigan to abolish life without parole for juveniles in all cases. Legislation with that goal in mind is pending in several other states, too. Her group is also pressing Congress to pass a bipartisan bill that would guarantee judicial review for juveniles who have served 20 years behind bars. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. If checking social media makes you angry or outraged, that might be by design. That's because algorithms select content that elicits strong emotions to keep users engaged. Today's afternoon podcast, Consider This, looks at how social media is not only shaping our view of the world, but also world events. To listen, find Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered, remembering the influential French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. In the forecast, most of the heavy rain is still out in the Berkshires. Tonight, clouds and any showers should move on out, leaving behind clear skies, setting the stage for a nice day tomorrow. Sunny and dry should warm to about 80 degrees. More sunshine on Thursday. Coming to WBUR City Space Tuesday, September 27th, a live taping of the podcast No One Is Coming to Save Us, in which host Gloria Riviera explores the child care crisis. Free tickets are available at wbur.org slash events. New York Yankees make their final trip to Boston this season with a game tonight and another one tomorrow. Nick Pavetta throws the first pitch at 7:10 tonight. It's Garrett Cole for the Yankees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Arts Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages. Registration for fall classes for all levels of ability at newartscenter.org. I mean, a lot of people were surprised by this Ukrainian offensive over the last several days in the Northeast. 
But if you think about it, uh, here's this whole country, really, that's being supported by a, almost a billion dollars a week now in arms. Maybe it isn't that surprising they could pull something like this off. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. For the first time in almost 50 years, the U.S. House will swear in a new member from Alaska. Democrat Mary Peltola will be the first Alaska native to serve in Congress. With an emphasis on civility and respect for other candidates, Peltola beat Donald Trump's favorite Sarah Palin to win a special election for the state's only House seat. And she'll have to do the same in November to keep it. Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports from the U.S. Capitol. Peltola joins a freshman House class that includes brash partisans. She's a different sort. She lowers her voice for media interviews. My hope is to take the values of collaboration and peacemaking and those those kind of qualities. I, I hope that I can reflect those. As a Yupik from rural western Alaska, Peltola says she's been taught to consider community harmony and being part of something larger. She says she's proud of her ethnicities, all of them. She often points out that her dad is a white guy from Nebraska. On the eve of her swearing-in, Peltola went on MSNBC and pushed back at a question from host Joy Reid that invoked identity politics. You talk about one group um, having suffered more than another group. And I think that it's important in America that we're not trying to one-up each other on our level of suffering. Peltola likes to say that no American is her enemy. Her radical moderation hasn't dampened enthusiasm for her among Alaskans. Oh, there's Mary Peltola. I didn't even know she was going to be here. And then wonderful surprise, I have just sent messages to my wife. She says, you're so lucky. <laughs> Anchorage resident Brian Gouverneur is visiting D.C. and was delighted to run into Peltola in front of the Capitol. He's a big fan of the civility she brought to the campaign. We're cheering for her so much, so much. I, I think this is a big task, big responsibility. I know she's somewhat nervous, but that's okay. That's where we're cheering her to do this job for all Alaskans. Peltola is the first person elected under Alaska's new ranked choice voting system. Almost 60% of Alaskans chose one of the two Republicans, Palin or Nick Begich, as their first choice. The new system allows conservatives to avoid splitting their votes by selecting the other Republican as their second choice. But Palin and Begich are in a bitter feud. That could help Peltola win again in November. For NPR News, I'm Liz Ruskin in Washington. The influential critic and filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard has died in Switzerland. His family said the 91-year-old Godard had multiple illnesses and died from assisted suicide. The director spent his entire career pushing boundaries, reinventing cinematic form through films like the French New Wave classic Breathless, the Rolling Stones film Sympathy for the Devil, and the controversial modern take on the nativity Hail Mary. Critic Bob Mandelo offers this remembrance. What greeted audiences in Godard's first feature film, the 1960 crime drama Breathless, was the shock of the new. New York Herald Tribune! 
America's Gene Seberg, opposite an unknown with a cigarette dangling sexily from his lip, Jean-Paul Belmondo. He, a professional car thief and existential killer. She, a free spirit, Hollywood archetypes, but reconceived the very essence of cool. Où venez-vous, Monte Carlo? de Marseille. Godard was a fan of Hollywood films. As a critic, he'd championed directors Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks. And in Breathless, there's a poster of Humphrey Bogart to underline what Belmondo is going for. But with jump-cut editing and actors interacting with the camera, the filmmaker was part of a new wave in storytelling, one filled with experimentation and a rejection of accepted technique. He comes along in 1960. Critic David Thompson, author of the Biographical Dictionary of Film. And says, in effect, I have seen all the films ever made. I love them, most of them, but I abandon them because they're all out of date. I am going to make a new kind of film, and I'm going to combine the energy and the novelty of ideas of a student with the story forms of the old films. And for six or seven years, two films a year, so we're talking about a fair number of movies, he pulls it off. In pictures like Contempt, with Bridget Bardot and Jack Palance, in which he indicts commercial filmmaking, in his science fiction film Alphaville, about a society run by a computer, and most memorably, in his scathing, satirical takedown of middle-class materialism, Weekend, a black comedy involving murder, cannibalism, and an eight-minute, single-shot traffic jam on a country road that is among the most celebrated film moments of the 1960s. Weekend premiered just weeks before student and worker protests shut down much of France in May of 1968. Godard, leading a protest that closed the Cannes Film Festival that month, told the crowd that not one of the films in competition represented their causes. We are behind the times, said this leader of the French New Wave, and in that moment his filmmaking took a turn. He embarked on a decade of deliberately revolutionary movies, low-budget provocations, non-commercial, shot in Palestine, Italy, Czechoslovakia, and filled with a Marxist fervor. Tout va bien, for instance, starring Yves Montand and Jane Fonda in the story of striking workers in a sausage factory. This overt emphasis on politics was itself a phase, and by the 1980s, Godard was looking inward and looking at film itself. As his art matured, he grew less interested in narrative and more in experimenting, though he'd actually always been experimenting. In a public debate in 1966, he kept calling film grammar itself into question. An exasperated panelist finally sputtered, surely you agree that film should have a beginning, a middle part, and an end? Yes, conceded Godard, but not necessarily in that order. Godard had come to film in his early 20s. My parents uh, told me about literature. Some other people told me about paintings, about music. But no one told me about pictures. So he told others. He began as a critic, and in a sense he remained one all of his life in famously quotable public statements. All you need to make a movie, he once said, is a girl and a gun. But as time went on, he was happy to dispense with both of those, and with plot, too. A difficult man by nearly all accounts, he feuded with friends and fellow New Wave directors, and in his later years dismissed notions that contemporary Hollywood could ever make serious films, using as his example Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. Is it an honest movie-making? I don't know, for, for him, probably. If he was really honest, his usual way should have made a 
T-shirt with Auschwitz put it and tried to sell it the way he made Jurassic Park, if he was honest. If Godard's own work was honest by his lights, in his final decades it mostly consisted of visual essays, collages of film and video clips that found smaller and smaller audiences. But what he achieved in the early 1960s is still with us, his innovation so absorbed by the mainstream that he has continued to influence filmmakers, some of whom may barely have heard of him, long after the new wave got old. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2023 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be the Sox and Yankees of Fenway for a quick two-game series that starts tonight at 7:10. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston, Garrett Cole for the Yankees. Gray skies for the most part, still feeling pretty soupy out there. Humidity at 91%. Tonight things start to change. Clouds give way to clear skies down around 61 degrees. Tomorrow sunny skies, breezy with highs just about 70. 72 degrees right now in Boston at 5:59. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Dow falls 1,200 points today. That after news came that inflation in August was worse than expected, raising concerns the Federal Reserve will need to continue to lift interest rates to bring prices under control. Today is Tuesday, September 13th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a Ukrainian delegation is in Washington, D.C. this week, lobbying lawmakers for additional military assistance. For Ukrainian victory, complete victory, we need uh, more tanks, HIMARS, fighter jets. And we'll hear more from a Ukrainian political activist and former member of parliament. Jeff Muldor is a master of American roots, jazz, and blues. For his latest album, he puts the music in the hands of European chamber musicians. First time I saw the Boeva, he's sitting on the square. Next time I see him, he had his family there. Jeff Maldauer, coming up. He had his family there. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Trump's battling, or troops battling, Russian forces in Ukraine are said to be continuing to pile on the pressure against retreating forces as a counteroffensive continues. 
The Ukrainian army, in a stunning blow to Moscow's military, has managed to take back a number of occupied towns and villages, forcing Russian troops to retreat in what some see as a possible turning point in the now seven-month-old war. However, White House spokesman John Kirby said that could change quickly. These are some dramatic events we're watching, but it's war, and war is unpredictable. And I, I think we're going to watch this as closely as we can, but it's really the Ukrainian armed forces that um, that should speak to the to the progress they're making. Kirby has said he thinks there will be another Ukrainian assistance package soon. Russia, meanwhile, acknowledged it has been forced to pull back in the northeastern region of Kharkiv in recent days, but continues to occupy other areas. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill today heard from former Twitter security chief Peter Zatko, who said the social media platform is basically held together with the equivalent of bailing wire. Zatko telling members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, in essence, the company's weak cyber defenses make it vulnerable to everyone from teenage hackers to spies. Zatko told lawmakers, quote, I'm here because Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. Meanwhile, Twitter investors have approved a $44 billion takeover bid from entrepreneur Elon Musk, even as he seeks to abandon the deal. New York has enacted new regulations governing religious and private schools after allegations some ultra-Orthodox yeshivas are failing to provide students with a robust education. WNYC's Sophia Chang reports the state has some 1,800 non-public schools. New York State has long stayed away from enforcing oversight of religious schools, including yeshivas. But officials created this framework after years of allegations that some ultra-Orthodox schools in New York City aren't teaching basic skills and English literacy. And the boys in these yeshivas come out ill-equipped to function in the world. In order to show they're providing students with an education that is substantially equivalent to that of a public school, private schools will now have to ensure their teachers are competent in their subjects, and instruction in core subjects like history or English language will be required. The state is giving schools three years to comply. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Chang in New York City. While there was some sign of easing in the monthly inflation figures out from the government today, it was nowhere near enough to assuage worries on Wall Street. Consumer prices last month were still up 8.3 percent from a year ago and a tenth of a percent from July. Most worrisome so-called core inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy costs, rose six-tenths of a percent from last month. Stocks plunged on Wall Street. The Dow down more than 1,200 points to close at 31,104. The Nasdaq fell 632 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Commuter rail trains are back to running normally in and out of South Station in Boston after earlier delays of more than an hour. Rail operator Keolis says the holdup was caused by a problem with a signal near the station. It says Amtrak is responsible for maintaining the signal that failed. Residual delays are affecting several trains, and delays may continue into the evening. MBTA officials say the work on the Orange Line is now 82 percent complete. Crews shut down the line and began to replace tracks and rails and upgrade signals August 19th. The work is part of a directive from the Federal Transit Administration to improve safety and address deferred maintenance. The Orange Line is expected to fully reopen Monday as promised. Data from the Secretary of State's office released this afternoon show voter turnout in last week's primary topped out at more than a million ballots. That translates near, nearly 22 percent of registered voters and is the second highest turnout in a state primary since 1990. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, it appears voting by mail is driving the higher turnout. Nearly half the people who cast a ballot in last week's primary voted by mail. 
Secretary of State Bill Galvin says options to vote from home or in person before Election Day increase voter participation. It's obvious that voters chose in both parties to take advantage of the options they had to vote by mail and vote early. It's significantly so on the Democratic side. Galvin says other states should follow Massachusetts in allowing permanent, no-excuse absentee voting. Really what it says to other states, if you really want to increase turnout, you want to do this. Forms to request a ballot for the general election in November are being mailed to voters now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Welding work on a new high school in Worcester is halted until a construction safety plan is approved by the fire department. That's after the building caught fire in a welding accident yesterday. City officials determined the permit for the work had lapsed. City and school officials continue to assess the damage and building stability. Most of the heavy rain is still out in the Berkshires. Any storms that might make their way to the Boston area should move out overnight tonight, leaving behind clear skies and making way for a sunny, dry day tomorrow. Should warm to about 80 degrees. More sunshine ahead for Thursday. 72 degrees under gray skies in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There was hope building about new inflation numbers out today, that they might show a big improvement. But that didn't happen. The government's consumer price index was worse than expected. The stock market sold off sharply, with the Dow plummeting almost 1,300 points. And there was a collective groan from economists. NPR's Chris Arnold has been following all of this. Hey, Chris. Hey, Juana. So tell us, what stood out in this report, Chris? Well, first, we should say that the overall rate of inflation did slow down a bit. You know, that's good. From an annual rate of 8.5% in July, it came down to 8.3% in August, a little bit. Thing is that gas prices accounted for almost all of that. And, and anybody who drives by a gas pump has seen gas prices are down, and that's good. It helps a lot of people. But for just about everything else besides gas, you know, food, news, new cars, medical care, all kinds of other stuff is rising. And that's showing that inflation is still stubbornly hot. I I talked to economist Mark Zandi with Moody's Analytics just minutes after the report came out, and this was his first gut reaction. Ugh, disappointing. Underlying inflation is very strong, painfully high, and at least in the month of August didn't show any signs of cooling off. So not good news. Yeah, he does not sound impressed. No. So, Chris, besides when people are filling up their gas tanks, it does not sound like there's much of a break for people from these higher prices. Right. And Zandi says the typical American household needs to spend, his estimate is about $450 more per month compared to a year ago because of inflation and these higher prices. So, you know, whether it's a few cents for a bunch of bananas at the grocery store might not seem like much, but then there's a bigger electric bill to cool your house over the summer. Uh, You know, so all these things add up and it's more than $5,000 a year for everyday people. And the big ug here, too, for economists is that a month ago, we had a much better than expected inflation report in a number of ways. And so the hope was that this was going to be encouraging also, but then that didn't happen. One prominent Obama economic advisor tweeted today, uh, the quote was, this CPI report is terrible. So no spin there. No, none at all. Okay, so what about the Federal Reserve? Anything that the Fed can do in the face of all of this inflation? 
Yeah, next week, the Fed is poised to raise interest rates pretty sharply again. It'll likely be the third meeting in a row where the Fed's expected that they'll raise rates by three quarters of a percent. And that is having an effect. It's cooled off the super hot housing market you know, with, with mortgage rates being so high now. I mean, that's just put a lid on home prices. We're not seeing incredible price gains for houses. On the rental side, though, rents are still rising and this winter heating your house is likely to be a lot a lot more expensive. And the Fed just has a tough assignment here to try to rein in prices on all these different things. Okay, so I guess my question here is, are there any signs of hope when it comes to inflation? There is. I have one sign of hope for you. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York came out with a report about people's expectations about inflation, and that showed significant improvement. People that is thinking that inflation will have cooled off a lot a few years down the road. And that's actually really important because if people were getting more panicked or more worried about inflation, Mark Zandi says that could really be damaging. That's critical because once people uh, begin to think that inflation is going to be high in the future, then they're going to demand higher wages from their employers uh, to compensate. And employers are going to say, no big deal, fine, I'll do it because I can pass along that higher wage cost to my customers in the form of a higher price. You get into this kind of self-reinforcing wage price spiral, which we really don't want to get into. Now, it's the Federal Reserve's job to keep us away from that spiral. So again, likely it's likely going to keep hitting the brakes on the economy with higher interest rates, hopefully without tipping the economy into recession. That's NPR's Chris Arnold. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. Every so often this year, as war has unfolded in Ukraine, I have been checking in with Hanna Hopko. She's a pro-democracy activist, a former member of parliament in Ukraine, and a fellow mom. I first met her in Kyiv right before the war. She has helped me, and I hope many of our listeners understand the human toll that war is taking on her country, and help me understand just how hard Ukrainians are willing to fight for their country. So... I wanted to hear her reaction to the news of Ukraine's stunning military advance over the weekend. It turns out Hanna Hopko is in Washington this week. In fact, here in our studios, Hanna Hopko, so good to speak to you again. So good to see you in person. Welcome to Washington. Thanks a lot, Marie-Louise. I'm really proud to be here to express our gratitude to the American people, to American leadership for helping us to win over Russian aggression. Well, speaking of winning... The headlines these last few days are big battlefield victories for Ukraine, seizing land back that Russia had taken in eastern Ukraine. We hear that Moscow is reeling from this setback. Do you see this as a turning point in the war? Uh, thanks to the U.S. military aid and uh, Johimars. <laughs> and uh, Heimars, the, the weapons that take out Russian air defenses that the U.S. has been sending. Yeah, so uh, helped um, is a game changer. But complete Ukrainian victory means restoration of full uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty and internationally recognized border of 1991. So this is why... Taking back Crimea, yes. taking, taking back, back all of Eastern Ukraine. Yeah, because Ukraine. every inch of Ukrainian territory should be free from Russian occupiers. So I'm hearing you say the goal, the unswerving goal here must be complete 
Ukrainian victory, that that a return to the way things were a year ago, two years ago, where Russia occupied Crimea, that that would not be acceptable. Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 by illegal annexation of Crimea. This is how the global security architecture was broken. And Ukrainian victory means, of course, return back to Ukraine, Donbass and Crimea. But I'm asking because, as I'm sure you are hearing in Washington and I've heard on your past visits in Washington, um, a lot of U.S. officials are skeptical that you're going to get Russia to pull out completely at this point, um, that Vladimir Putin will never do that, and that the U.S. and NATO allies say they very much want Ukraine to have a, a better hand when negotiations start, but that there's going to be a negotiation. First, uh, Ukraine should defeat Russia military. Then negotiation starts. Because we have to defeat totalitarianism in 21st century. It's it's key. When when you and I spoke over the summer, you told me that you were losing not one, not three, not five friends a day killed in the war. That every time you opened WhatsApp or opened Facebook, it was somebody else you knew who was gone. Is that still happening? Yes. So this is another reason why we are asking about more weapons. It's so painful to see stories and uh, funerals and when best of the best, the brightest people of my country, of our nation, passing away by defending Ukraine's freedom. And I'm sure and I'm full of optimism that people there with their empathy to Ukraine, with their uh, support. So uh, we will conduct public awareness campaign to explain why it's really important to continue supporting Ukraine in uh, this uh, Russian genocidal war against us and to win together and not to allow devastation moving beyond our borders and actually to prevent and new wars. The guinea pig. A lot of people listening, um, I think, know and think of you as the guinea pig mom. <laughs> a title that you have added this year. Um, you just bought your daughter a guinea pig when Russia invaded. And you were all worried about having to evacuate with the guinea pig, which you have done. What is the update? Where is the guinea pig? Where is your daughter? What's happening? We evacuated to my husband's parents. Uh, they were very happy. I would... Happy uh, because uh, we also, when we evacuated um, a dog, it seems like we will have zoo. <laughs> this, is, this is a puppy that you've added. The puppy, yes. So, so we're still divided. So my daughter is my, is, is uh, with my parents. Uh, my husband is uh, alone. My home is everywhere when I can't. Um, help my country to win. So I'm traveling a lot and I already visited Czech Republic because of the, their presidency in the EU. Then I go to, went to uh, Georgia, Tbilisi. Now I'm in Washington. Then I'm uh, planning to visit Hungary, uh, Canada. I think this is important for people to hear because we keep, we are hearing from our reporters in Ukraine that while war is, of course, brutal and ongoing in some parts of Ukraine, that life in the capital in Kiev has in many ways returned to normal. I'm, use, I'm using air quotes around normal, but something closer to normal. For your family, very much not. You, your husband, your daughter, you, the pets, you're all, you're all in different places. This is a still, your life is completely upended. 
Yeah, but, but, but compared to people who lost their loved one, so we are suffering, of course, because uh, for last seven months, I've seen my daughter only seven days. Oh. But I understand that contribution I could do for my country to win faster is um, even more important than now being together with my family. And because it's also part of our victory when uh, my daughter and her husband in the future in 20, 30 years period of time from now will never face aggressive behavior from our neighbor. So, and Russia will never attack any sovereign independent states in the future. Hanna Hopko, thank you. Thank you, Marie-Louise. And um, thank you for your covering and visiting Ukraine. And Ukraine is always welcome. And uh, you will see finally uh, guinea pig. I will look forward to it. I will look forward to it. That is activist and former member of parliament in Ukraine and the guinea pig mom, Hanna Hopko. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, an influential master of American jug band roots, jazz, and blues puts his arrangements in the hands of Dutch chamber musicians. We'll hear the result. A big Tuesday tumble on Wall Street today. The Dow had its worst day since June of 2020 as it lost nearly 4 percent, that's 1,276 points, to close at 31,105. S&P surrendered 4 percent to make that 4.32 percent to finish at 39.33. The Nasdaq lost a little more than 5 percent to finally settle at 11,634. A small Middlesex County town will be the home to a sprawling new residential and shopping complex. The town of Littleton has given the green light to a multi-million square foot development that will include almost 800 new apartments. Sal's Pizza founder Sal Lapoli is the developer leading the project. He expects to break ground next year on the former grounds of an IBM laboratory. Clearing skies overnight tonight. Sunshine tomorrow should be a dry day with highs just about 80 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Jeff Maldor is restless. It's not enough that he's been an influential force in American roots, jazz, and blues since the 1960s, or that he sings, arranges, composes, and plays everything from the guitar to the kazoo. Maldor cast his gaze abroad for his latest recording. He spent about a decade traveling to and from Amsterdam, where he assembled a group of top-notch European classical musicians to play distinctly non-European and mostly non-classical works. Tell me what time the trains come through your town. The result is his last letter. It's an elegantly packaged double LP box set and CD set, both with booklets. It opens with this song, Black Horse Blues, written by Blind Lemon Jefferson in the 1920s. 
your music, including in this song, spans time and genres and geography. And I want to get to the geography first, because you went back and forth for, what, like 10 years to the Netherlands to find musicians in Amsterdam, who you found, who would be able to do justice to music that, in some cases, they had never heard. Tell us about that process. There's an open-mindedness there, especially with these classical players who, if you're in one of those orchestras, even if you're a principal, and even though you're playing some of the most beautiful music ever written, uh, they're very open-minded to try something else. What I picture you doing is kind of taking by the hand an artist whose music you heard that maybe from the 1920s, and I want to talk specifically about one of them, Vera Hall, and how you brought it into the present. And you don't necessarily modernize the music, you kind of molderize the music. And I want to hear how you did that. And so I have an example of her song, Bull Weevil. And as, as many people will remember, the Bull Weevil was this beetle that was nasty and really ugly and uh, fed on cotton blossoms and devastated the cotton industry in the American South in the 1920s. During that time, Vera Hall, an African-American woman, recorded this song a cappella. Hey, hey, Bowie, where's your native home? Way down in the bottom, among the cotton and cone. So tell us about this version. First time I saw the Bowie, he's sitting on the square. Next time I seed him, he had his family there. Well, this version was done with Jim Queskin. I've made it slightly comedic. It's a little bouncier and more sort of authentic in terms of American uh, string band music. What was your kind of like your guiding principle aside from not doing a cappella? There, there are no guiding principles in my <laughs> in my factory. Not that you're unprincipled, but but so so what did it so how did you end up with the sound? I cannot tell you what my process is. It's it changes all the time. It's mostly just what I feel. And tell us about the evolution from this version to this one that we're going to hear now with the players from the Netherlands. Well, tell me, Boeva, how'd you get the great long bill? I got it down in Texas, among the western hills. Among the western hills. Among the western hills. Way out in Texas. We're hearing here someone's playing the banjo. That's Jeff Muldor. That's Jeff Muldor. I've heard of him. And then the penny whistle? Uh, the penny whistle is being played by the bassoonist, which is a pretty <laughs> rare double. She could just play anything. What did you tell them? Did they need to know the history of the song as, as they were about to record it? Well, an interesting question, because what I did to get their attention was I printed out a picture of a bull weevil. Uh. <laughs> With its long yeah. proboscis. And I put it on each music stand <laughs> and watch them, you know, <laughs> start to turn green. <laughs> and uh, Why did you do that? To lighten things up and make sure that they could just relax. And this is not the kind of rhythm that is uh, difficult uh, for a classical player. 
there are chamber musicians. I mean, that's their stock and trade. They're extraordinarily versatile. But was there kind of a cultural difference? Because you're talking about music drawn from the American South. You're talking about rural blues music in some cases, early jazz. I didn't expect there to be a perfect translation. I didn't want there to be. I think they Europeanized me by the end as much <laughs> as I Americanized them. What does it mean? Meaning I started to write in a more European classical form, which ended up in the octet. Let's talk about the octet. This is in three movements, and this is where the name of the album is drawn from, his last letter. It comes from a tragic event in your family history, and we're going to be hearing the music. But tell us about this letter that came to you from a cousin that gave you the idea for this work. Well, it's exactly what happened. A a lawyer for a a cousin who was quite older than I was who passed away sent me a box, and in it were pictures and letters, which was wonderful because it was stuff from the 1860s and 70s. And my great-grandfather was a... uh, a navigator on, on on ships. He was in the Navy. And um, so his ship that he was on in uh, Yokohama, when he took off in the morning, was rammed by a British frigate and uh, sunk very quickly. But the night before, the packet boat came and took the mail. So this letter was written hours before he, he perished. And it was very loving, and I'll see you soon, and we're on our way to Canton, and then we'll head home. And it got to my heart. And the voice we're going to hear now is that of Lady Claren McFadden, a mezzo-soprano, who is portraying the scene after your great-grandmother received this letter. Last night she slept in a soft She dreamed of a ship on the rolling sea. Uh, I visited his grave because they, some of the people did survive, and they have a quite a nice thing in the cemetery in uh, Yokohama. So mm. I've gone there and paid my respects a few times. Actually. Oh my gosh! Wow. When I ask you a little bit more about working with this chamber orchestra, the Dutch musicians. And let's take one of the earlier pieces in the album, and that's Duke Ellington's Lady of the Lavender Mist. Let's hear a little bit of that. And I know you have such an appreciation for these musicians, and I want you to tell us what they brought to the music. Right off the bat, this accordion player turned out to be a genius, Gert Wattenauer. The clarinetist, first clarinetist, got the most beautiful sound. He plays in jazz, in the Metropole Jazz Orchestra. And so the combination of those two made it just perfect. I couldn't do this tune in a sensuous, slow, funky way because, once again, Duke already did that. You just can't, you can't beat that stuff. So I did it more like a hot club of France, uh, Fred Astaire visiting Paris, and he goes into this club and uh, starts dancing with a young lady. And that's what sort of I 
brought to the tomb. Jeff Maldor, thank you. Well, you're entirely welcome. Please, huh? Lady of the Lavender Mist by Duke Ellington, one of the songs on Jeff Maldor's new album called His Last Letter. By the way, Maldor used to be part of the early Harvard Square Cambridge music scene. He has moved back to the area from New York. He says this is where he belongs. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com